Lord, we're grateful to be here, and we understand that um, you have built this church. Um, this is your church. These are your people. These are your walls. This is your space. And Lord, so we thank you that you have seen fit to do this work through us in this town. And so, Lord, we, uh, we come before you, and we pray that you would continue to gather people to you through this church. We pray that you would continue to change our hearts We pray that you would soften our hearts this morning as we open your word and we hear from you. We know that you, only you, Lord, contain the words of life, as Peter said to you. And so, Lord, we ask that these words would be transformational. They would be life-changing. They would remind us of things that we forget. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that work, acknowledging that only you can do that work. And that I can't. I can't have any effect on people's hearts. It has to be you that does that work. So, Lord, we ask and we plead with you that you would do that very thing. And we know that you are eager to do that, and we thank you for it. So, Lord, we pray these things humbly and in your name and all God's people said. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Genesis 22. Uh, We're three weeks into a series called The God Who Redeems, which you can see behind me there. And basically the big idea is these are, we're going through the Bible and we're going through stories of God restoring his people for his glory. So what we want to do over the next 12 weeks is hit a lot of these classic stories of the Bible that we either may or may not have heard uh, over the course of our lives and see how God is really the hero in all of these stories. We started with the story of Adam and Eve a couple of weeks ago, and we saw really that God resolved after Adam and Eve sinned to redeem their worship, okay? So Adam and Eve had everything going for them. They had the life, and they traded in. They traded it all in because they decided to worship themselves instead of keeping their worship directed and focused solely on God. And because of that, they were cast out of the garden. So we saw that God has a resolution in all of our lives to redeem us and most specifically to redeem our worship. Okay. And then we get to the story of Noah and we see how this sort of this story of redemption continues. And we see that in Noah's life, man, how God's grace literally just came flooding on him. No pun. And we saw his grace kind of played out in these three different ways. It was a saving grace. It saved Noah. Um, it secured Noah and it ended up sustaining Noah and his family into the generations that lead all the way uh, to Christ. So as we start out this morning, this is what I want. I want you to imagine, if you would, if you received an email from God at gmail.com tonight, and he told you to pack up first thing in the morning and get out of Dodge for the rest of your life. He basically says, like, I want you to pack the bags, hop in the car, and out ASAP. No other instructions are given, but to get in the car, start driving, and that you would receive information on a need-to-know basis. Can you imagine getting an email like that from God himself or a phone call if anybody still does that? I don't know. Um, Of course, he does provide a few small consolations in the email. Number one, he says, I'm going to bless you, by the way. Then he says, number two, I'm going to give you a ton of kids. Some of you guys are like, you know, am I I still in on that one? Three, he says, I'm going to bless, not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless everyone who blesses you. How about that? And then not only that, but I'm going to curse everyone who curses you. All right. And then number four, he says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth because of you. And now it's just getting like out of control. Now it's just getting epic and like mind boggling. But what would go through your mind when you went to bed that night after clicking on that email? 
Let me bring it a little closer to home. Do you remember, for those of you who know Christ, do you remember what you thought when God called you to salvation? What was the line of thinking that was going on in your head and in your heart when God saved you? What were your expectations when that happened? Maybe you were too young to remember that. But were they along the lines of this? Were they along the lines of, well, now I know that because Christ has saved me, and because I love him for that, that I need to now deny myself. And that now I need to follow him. And that now I need to spend my life making disciples and being salt and light to my family and my neighbors and my coworkers and my church family. Let me say it to you this way. Maybe some of you guys have graduated recently or in the past with degrees or you went to trade school or you've received on-the-job training or maybe you've just entered high school or college or maybe you've become parents. Maybe you've had these things kind of happen into your life that are preparing you for the direction in the course of your life. Let me ask you this. Did any of you think that you'd be doing something different than what the job described that you were supposed to be doing? And then did you further think that you'd be an expert in that field the first day out? Like, in other words, did you think you'd never face any issues as somebody who was entering a career or entering becoming a parent or entering marriage? That on the first day of of being a parent, that you'd just be a fountain of parental knowledge? I mean, that would just be naive and idealistic and arrogant and really irritating if you were already a parent listening to that. But what I mean by all this is that we grow in our roles as we go deeper in practice of them. And our faith is similar in that God, what God does is he tests his people. In the same way that when you enter into something new, whether it's a career or marriage or anything else, you are going to be tested. And it's through that testing that God is actually going to grow you into the likeness of himself and make you more equipped for the task that he's actually brought you into. And so the big idea this morning is simply this. God tests his people to further their faith in his provision and devotion to his purposes. That's what we're going to see this morning. That God tests his people to further their faith in his provision. Now keep that word at the top of your noggin. And his devotion to his purpose. In other words, God wants us to put all of our eggs in his basket. He wants us to trust That his hand never slips off the steering wheel of our lives. So that we can get on with the business of going in the direction he wants us to go. All right? So I had a a brother-in-law named Danny. And uh, this guy bought a new motorcycle. And we used to go out to the track and ride. So what happens is when you get a bike, sometimes you put new new grips on them. Right? So you hold onto the handlebars and you have these rubber grips. And some, you got to make sure you put glue in the grips because they can be a little slippy. All right? And so what happened with Danny is he, he didn't... Didn't do that. So he went off this big jump. He's about 20 feet in the air. He lands off the jump, and he goes, whoop. Both of his hands just slide off the bars, and he goes tumbling over and over and over again. Yeah, it was really ugly. It was not a pl- I saw the whole thing. It was not pleasant. When we think of God and we think of the way he provides for us, we understand that that doesn't happen when God has control over our lives because he continues and consistently provides for us. So we may slip, but his hands are already on the steering wheel. His hands are already on the handlebars, and we can just hold on to him. 
So this morning, what we're going to do is look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible about a man named Abraham, his son Isaac, and how God put him through one of the most trying days that anyone has ever had to experience. I mean, if somebody compiled a top five list of most stressful days ever, this would literally be in that top five list. And some of you have days like this. Some of you are having days like this. I've talked to some of you. I know this. You've had days that have literally laid you out flat. You're gasping for breath. You're trying to understand where God is. And it's in these times that we'll see God's provision for us as we struggle to, and strive to trust and to obey him. Now, for a little context with Abraham... If you grew up in church, you probably have this vision of Abraham like we do for a lot of these old patriarchs. Is this old guy with the long white beard, a staff, and a white robe looking like Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter. Like we get that kind of a vibe when we think of these old guys. A wise old sage who had many sons. If you ever sang, Father Abraham had many sons in Sunday school. But the story that the Bible lays out for us is that old Abe, right, after God called him out of the town that he called him out of, old Abe was a mess. Abraham was a disaster, okay, after God called him. This is a dude that made more mistakes than a blind person taking a driving test. I mean, this is a guy whose life was a mess. God didn't pick Abe because he got picked most likely to succeed in high school, though. That's not why God picked him. God chose Abraham for the same reason he chose Noah, and that was to fulfill his plan to bring his son into the world to die for our sins so that sinners could have peace with God and give him glory once again. So just in case all the stories in the Bible, and we're going to go through a lot of these over the next couple of months, if all these stories start to seem very layered and complex and complicated at times, you need to remember that this is where they're always heading. They're always pointing to Jesus Christ. All the stories are leading directionally back to Jesus. Now, as we dive into the backdrop of this story that we're looking in today, it's worth mentioning a couple things, all right? It's worth mentioning that Abe and his wife Sarah were not youngsters when God called them out of their home country called Ur of the Chaldeans, all right? If you go to Genesis 12, you don't have to go there. Um, God told him he was going to make a great nation out of him. So God picks Abraham out of his home country, says, take off, pal, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But here's what's interesting about that. Abe and Sarah had never had children. They'd struggled with infertility. And this is how we start to see the grace of God in using people that we would tend to write off, right? I mean, in other words, if you're going to start a nation, the logical choice would be to pick a young 20-something couple and tell them to start getting busy. I'm just saying. That's kind of where we'd go. But God, we see in all of these stories with the people that he picks, God chooses differently. All right, so he picks old Abe and old Sarah, and he tells them they're going to have a baby, Here's the kicker when we're talking about these guys. They're 65 and 75 years old when he calls them. And then because God's timing is usually a little less rapid than ours and because he literally likes to do things to show us his greatness and his power, he decides them to wait, wait for it, 25 more years. All right, so if you're not very good at math, like what this does is it puts Abe at 100 years old and Sarah at 90, still no kids. 
No golden years for these two kids, man. No RV, no senior citizen discount. It's time to buy a crib, stock up on Pampers, and start a family, kids. That's what we're asking you to do at 190 years old. They had to wait. God said, I'm calling you to do this. I'm going to give you a baby. And then silence. I'm going to make you wait for this child is what happens. Man, some of us, we know what that feels like, don't we? I mean, some of you know what it's like to wait on the Lord. And you know the pain that waiting sometimes brings. And 25 years after God visited him, told him to leave a country, didn't tell him where he was going to go, at 75 years old, 25 years later, still no baby. I mean, don't let that wash over you. I mean, God is dramatic, isn't he? We saw that last week with Noah. He's dramatic and he's unconventional. He's also patient. He's also patient. But Abe and Sarah, man, they struggled to believe that God would provide him the way that he said he would. So we get to Genesis 16, and Sarah tells Abraham, man, Abe, we need to get this baby issue resolved. It's been a few years. Nothing's happening. we got to figure this out. She tells him to go ahead and have a child by her maid, Hagar. This is something that happened back in those times so that the, they could kick this sort of nation-building project into gear. So we see Abraham just sort of look at Sarah and go, okay, I'll do it. You know, and it reminds us of Adam, right? It reminds us of Adam that when dudes get passive, messes happen. Abraham knew what God had told him. He knew what God had promised him. His wife comes along and says, it's just not working out fast enough for us. And I don't know if you've noticed, Abe, but I'm not getting any younger. You ain't either. So let's kick this thing into gear. So Abraham just kind of goes, okay. You know, I mean, I don't want, you know, I want to, I want to keep it cool. You know, I don't want things to get, you know, confrontational around the house. You know, I mean, you got your space. I got my space. So he complies and out comes a son named Ishmael. And the problem is that God never told Abe to hook up with Sarah's maid. He said the kid he promised him would be born to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, there's a lot of details leading up to where we're going today. But one thing we need to keep in mind was that God's provision for Abe and Sarah, could be counted on because his promises never fail. All right? The only failure that happens with the promises of God is that people fail to believe them. And we make a mess of things when we don't believe. Was Abraham believing God when he had that son with Hagar? He wasn't. He wasn't believing God, but God keeps his promises because he's faithful, not because we are. But we get impatient and we make moves that fall out of line with God's word. So what God does as an act of mercy and grace with his people is he tests them. He doesn't tempt them. He tests them. The book of James clearly tells us that God never tempts because that would go against his divine nature if he put things in front of us to lure us towards sin. But God does test us, meaning he allows us to go through trials to refine and strengthen our faith and trust in his provision. And to remember his promises. And that's where we begin today as we come into this particular chapter in Abraham's life in Genesis 22. So let's read together. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land 
of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So eventually what happened, we'll stop right there, is God did bless Abraham and Sarah with a son 13 years after Ishmael was born. Okay? And so then years after that, God comes to Abraham and he says this. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God now is coming to this place with Abraham in Abraham's life where he's going to test Abraham's faith, all right? Not to destroy it, but to deepen it. Not to wreck it, but to refine it. He also wants to do that with us. He also wants to begin a faith in us if we have none. Because in all of this, what's happening is that God is providing himself for us. So what we see here as we get into the first two verses of this chapter is he's saying, Abraham, here's the test, all right? Here's the test. Will you obey? Will you trust? Has your shaky faith been transformed into a solid faith yet? Take your son. Take your only son. Wasn't acknowledging Ishmael. Because he wasn't the son that God promised him. But he says, take your only son and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, I don't know about you, but that should strike you a little odd. I mean, to me, it's like, did I just hear that right, God? Yeah. Take the son I promised to give you, Abraham. The son I will use to eventually bless the nations of the world through my son. That son. Take that son. And what Isaac does through these passages as we get through them is he serves as a model and a type of Christ for us as we move through this. So just like God did when he called Abraham the first time, he tells him once again, Abraham, get up and go to the place that I will guide you to so that I can show you that I provide for those I promise to. Man, and that's what God does in our lives, you guys. God shows his provision for us by removing the padding of life from our chairs, which is why we didn't buy padded chairs for you at Substance, you know? I mean, man, we are just creatures who ferociously claw away at creating comfortable surroundings for ourselves, don't we? Because we believe that that comfort is the thing that protects us. What God is saying is this, where's your hope, Abraham? Is it in your son or is it in me? the one who provided you with your son. So what God is always doing is bringing us back to the source, back to the source. You know, you don't really rely on your water faucet, do you, to provide you with water? It's not the faucet that gives you water. It's what it's connected to. And God is always bringing us back to the source of these things in our lives, which is him. Let's pick back up in verse 3. He says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then verse 4 says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Let's stop there. Don't miss the gap there between verses 2 and 3. Okay? There was an entire night 
that Abraham spent with the news that God called him to go sacrifice his son. There was an entire night in between when God called him that, and he woke up the next morning to go obey God. We commonly refer to these kinds of life moments as dark nights of the soul, don't we? I mean, you think Abraham heard God's voice and just said, no problem, God. Let me get right on that. Let me just, uh, you know, check some emails. Let me catch up on the new season of CSI. I'll fall into a nice deep sleep, and then I'm just out in the morning, and I'll go sacrifice my son. And uh, good talking to you. I mean, it was unimaginable as we think about this, what God was commanding Abraham to do. And we have those moments. We have those types of moments of unknowability where it appears that life is taking us to a place that seems unimaginable. I mean, we don't know how God is going to work. We doubt. We rationalize. We come up with counter ideas. Do you think it's possible that Abraham may have constructed some alternative scenarios during the night? Yeah. But look at what it says in verse 3. He rose early in the morning. He fills up the tank. He grabs two of his employees, his son. He cuts the wood. The first thing he does is he acknowledges what is going to take place that God has commanded him to do. It's a burnt offering with his son. He cuts the wood for the offering and goes to the mountain that God instructed him to go to. Three days later, they arrive and Abraham makes this stunning statement to his men as they get to the face of the mountain in verse 5. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again back to you. Come again to you? I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, didn't God tell Abraham he was taking his son? I mean, what kind of faith did Abraham have, even right here? I mean, he didn't know what God would do, but he believed in a God who had done all that he had promised up to that point. And that's the thing about God's character. When we remember it, when we recall his character, it does something to us. It builds confidence in our lives. I mean, unless Abraham was plotting some kind of a, you know, Tom Cruise, ghost protocol, mission impossible escape plan when he got to the mountain, there was no power within himself to change the scenario he was in. And God creates drama that way in our lives. He creates that kind of drama to where, man, there is no other direction to go if we obey God. It's down that way. It's that direction. And what he does is he depletes our resources, doesn't he? He depletes all of our resources. He removes all barriers so that we're face-to-face with this decision to trust or not to trust in the God that has never failed us. This is what God is saying to Abraham, all right? He's saying, what will you do with me, Abraham? Not your wife, not your son, Not the abundance of possessions that I've given you. He gave Abraham a lot. Abraham had become a wealthy man. He's saying, what will you do with me, dude? Man, God brings those moments upon us, doesn't he? He brings those moments upon us. What will you do with me now that you've reached the end of yourself and you can't provide anymore? God is saying, you're not going to fix this, Abraham. And besides that... You can't even figure out what I'm doing right now. 
Does that seem like God to you? When you think about God and you think about his character and you think about the place that he might have in your life and the ways that you think he either has or hasn't been working on your behalf? Does that sound like God to you? Who do you believe in those moments like Abraham is experiencing? Do you believe yourself or do you believe God? Who's more reliable when we are stuck? Our perspective or God's promises? Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went both of them together. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Before we even can move into this passage, we get the imagery of Christ here, don't we? As the wood is laid upon Isaac, reminding us of how Christ carried his cross to Calvary. How the fire and the knife recalls for us Isaiah 53, where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we get that imagery when we think about the fire and the knife and what it was that was about to take place. And then Isaac, his son, asks in verse 7, he says, where's the sacrifice, Dad? He's like, I got all this, but I'm not seeing the lamb because typically what we do is make sacrifices with animals. And in this instance, it would be a lamb. Where's the sacrifice, Pops? God will provide for himself the lamb. Abraham replies in verse 8. They leave alone together up the mountain. The son being the only sacrifice to satisfy God. Everything else remains. It had to be the father and the son sacrificed. So man, the imagery of the cross here, it's deep. It's a deep imagery. Did Abraham know what God was going to do? No. But he knew God. And he knew that Isaac had to be alive for the promises God made to be fulfilled. He remembers the covenant that God made with him. He said, through your offspring, through your kids, I will make your name great. I will bless those that bless you, curse those who curse you. Through your name, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what that means. It means Isaac has to be in the picture. God always provides what God requires because we're unable. We go to Hebrews 11. It tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews goes so far speaking about Abraham to say that Abraham believed that God, if he was to have killed Isaac, his son, that God would have raised him from the dead. He was so sure that God was going to use Isaac and keep the promise that he had made him to make a great nation. I mean, all that's well and good, but it's uncomfortable in these situations, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to believe God, isn't it? 
to put your faith in someone who will act in ways that are far more unconventional than we would ever act. But that's salvation, isn't it? That's salvation. It's believing that God did what we could never do. And so we want to let that encourage and help us the next time that we don't understand what God is doing. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So we need to, we need to picture the drama of this scene. We need to picture Abraham arriving at the place that God told him. We need to picture the, the fear and the trembling in his hands as he prepares the altar, looking at his son, wondering what God was going to do. How could a good God allow this type of evil to happen? We ask that question all the time now, don't we? If God is so good, why do these things happen? Imagine the conversation going through Abraham's mind in this moment. This is the son God promised and gave me. I can't protect him. I'm going to betray him. I'm going to do the most unfatherly thing a person can do by taking my son's life. But was Isaac really Abraham's son? Biologically, of course he was. But there was nothing Abraham could do to save Isaac. It had to be a work of God to save his son at this point. And, you know, let me step away here for a, a second and say, oh, what an important thing to remember when we consider our own kids, isn't it? Do we have an influence over our kids? Yeah, we do. We're called to raise them up in the fear of the Lord. Absolutely. But God has to do that work inside of them, doesn't he? God has to do that work. And we want remedies. We want books. We want fixes. But what we don't want to do is trust that for our children to be saved, it is solely a work of the Holy Spirit. That's uncomfortable for me when I think about my daughter. I don't like that place. I don't like that place. Because I don't know how he's going to act in that. Just like Abraham didn't know how God was going to act in this. Think of Abraham's heart breaking as he binds his son in verse 9, which recalls the scene of Christ's death as the soldiers bound him before the cross. As he goes obediently with no fight, Isaac puts up no fight. Imagine the agony and the grief as Abraham lays Isaac on the altar on top of the wood. He lifts his knife to slaughter his son in verse 10. I mean, the anguish must have been unbearable. And I don't know how, but Abraham's obedience never wavers. And then an angel, a voice from heaven says, Abraham, 
Abraham, whenever we see somebody calling somebody's name twice in Scripture, it indicates that there's a relationship there, a tenderness and an intimacy. And all goes quiet. Right at the climax of the edge of the knife, piercing the skin of his child, hearing that familiar voice. The one who told him years ago that he would bless him, that he would make a great nation from him. Imagine hearing that voice again. Was there any other voice that would have soothed Abraham at that time? Was there any other voice that could have sparked the tiniest ray of hope other than that voice, other than the voice of God? And maybe some of you have experienced that. A passage from God's word spoken by a friend or a pastor that was exactly what you needed to hear in the moment that it was spoken to you. And in that moment, you heard the voice of God from his word, piercing into your heart and giving you that hope and that comfort again. That's how God speaks to us. God speaks to us exactly the way that he speaks to Abraham here. Through his word, to offer his words of comfort, words of hope. He says, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. You have obeyed me by not withholding your only son. That only son imagery, that goes deep for us. We think of passages like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It indicates that there was one person. There was one person. And it's just stunning. It's stunning when you see the narrative of this story play out. God saves Abraham's only son. But the issue now is that there still needs to be a sacrifice because God needs to confirm his oath. And so what does God do? But he provides another sacrifice. In 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham looks over and he sees a ram caught in the thicket after hearing the voice of God to pull back. Don't let the edge of that knife pierce the skin of your son. So he sees a ram, he offers it to the Lord in place of his son, who, by the way, God saved God saved Isaac. Isaac wasn't a suitable sacrifice for the Lord. So he provided one that was. The imagery there is stunning, isn't it, when we think of Christ? And then it says, Abraham names the place on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Furthering this beautiful imagery of what would happen thousands of years later when God provided Jesus, his only begotten son, to redeem us from our sin. I mean, the parallels that we can draw through in this passage are great. We're going to dive deeper into those in our community groups this week. But here's the big idea, is that God tests us. God tests us like he tests Abraham to further our faith in his provision and devotion to his purpose. And he does it in these three ways. Number one, he does it by making us wait, doesn't he? He shows us his provision by making us wait so that we can see how God works and that we can remember that he does work. Because we have short memories, don't we? But waiting does something for us, doesn't it? When we have to wait for something. It changes our disposition. 
It causes us to pause. It causes us to slow down. It causes us to question our motivations and to ask why. Why am I waiting? Why am I not getting this? Why am I not finding relief in this? Why am I not receiving this? Because what I want, it must be what's best for me. Maybe God makes us wait because he wants to provide what he wants to provide for us. You know, what's so interesting about us is that we all want answers, don't we? I want answers right now. There's things I could lay out to you. I have questions. I want answers. We all want answers. What's interesting about God, what God does, is he puts us in places so we begin to ask the right questions and see him as the answer. That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he does with us. That's how he shows us his provision by making us wait. Number two, he shows us his provision by by testing us. If our faith is never tested, how do we become more faithful? I mean, that's literal like kindergarten logic there, right? But if our faith is never tested, how do we become more faithful? I mean, we look at this and we can say, how dare God demand, how dare that you demanded Abraham's son from Abraham? Like, how dare you suggest that? But Abraham didn't do that. He didn't dare tell God what God had the right to do. You know what Abraham knew? Abraham knew that he had no rights. Abraham wasn't very American. He didn't think that he had any rights, even with his own son. That's interesting, isn't it? In the book of James, it says, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Well, steadfastness in what? In the faithfulness of God. It produces steadfastness. First Peter says, You have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God tests us so that we have our worship, just like we saw in Adam and Eve, turn back to him. So God shows his provision by making us wait, by testing us. And he also does it to prove himself. God proves himself to us. He doesn't have to, but he does, and he did it to to Abraham here. He proves himself faithful by taking things from us so that we get reacquainted with his provision. Kind of like what we do with our own kids. He takes things away from us so that we get reacquainted with the things that he does provide, most importantly, himself. Give me more, and then I'll believe. That's our rallying cry. Give me more, and then I'll believe. Give me what I want, and then I will believe. Just give it to me, Lord. And yet when we think about Jesus the night before his death, he said, God, remove this cup. Is there another way? Can you give me something else than what you've called me to do? Can you give me another way? other than obedience. And then he said, but not my will, but your will. And that's a picture of what we see here with Abraham. God tests us. He does that as a way to further our faith because he's a good father, he's a kind father, and his ultimate goal is his glory by drawing us back into worshiping him 
and being devoted to the purpose he has in our life, which is to become more like him. So we look at a story like this, and like, it's, it's hard to connect with some of these ideas. Because God is not going to come to you and ask you to sacrifice your son. But you know what God is doing all through your life as a believer? Is he's calling you to deny yourself and follow him. And sacrifice those things that in your life and in your heart are most dear to you. Because he wants to give you what's most dearest to him, which is him. God is so gracious that what he wants most for you is more of him. And it's that which is going to produce the most fruit in our lives, create the most joy in them when we're not receiving the things that we feel we're entitled to and that we want, and that we can't see the resolution to the end of the story of. That's how good that God is. He says, in that, I will show you how I provide for you. And the greatest point of my provision is myself. We can praise God that he is a God that loves and cares about us enough to deal with us the way that he dealt with Abraham. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a tough story for us to dive into. There's so many things that even remain unpacked in our short amount of time of taking, taking our time through these passages this morning. Lord, we can assent in our minds to the fact that you provide, that you give us the things that we need. Occasionally you give us the things that we want. Lord, but we don't realize how much of our lives are spent going after and being enslaved and subjected to those things. And when we don't receive those things, when you are calling us and you are testing us and you are taking things away, how often We hold on tighter and we grip these things closer to us and we demand things of you that we have no right to demand of you. Lord, I pray that our faith would be like Abraham's. We would remember and we would recall what you have done in our lives. All the different ways that you have remained faithful. All the different ways that you have provided for us. Lord, let us not forget these things so easily when we find ourselves in moments of testing and trials. Lord, I pray that you would bring people into our lives even now for some of us that are experiencing things like that. Lord, bring other believers, other people in our church family to help us and surround us and encourage us and remind us that you will be faithful. You will provide. And Lord, in those moments, I pray that you'd renew a devotion to your purposes and remind us of your great grace, your never-ending mercy, and your great love to us. We ask all of these things in your son's name. And the church said, amen and amen.